episode 37. Welcome back everybody. Hope everyone is well and happy in the world. This week, episode 37, is with the marvellous Eric Marcus of Making a History Fame. Uh, Eric, I was so pleased to be joined by Eric this week. Um, Making a History Podcast is one of my favourites and I've recommended it to you listeners before. Um I think it's quite a fascinating chat with one of the most, well, one of the nicest gentlemen I've ever had the pleasure of chatting to, actually. Eric's experiences of chatting candidly to everyone from Ellen DeGeneres to Larry Kramer to to activists, Stonewall rioters, they're ones of, well, I can't wait to share them with you. Before we jump in with this week's recommendations and the wonderful Eric... Just to give you a brief reminder to get online and get to my website, www.40somethinggay.co.uk, to share your thoughts, to contact me, to talk to me. And it's www40 is 40somethinggay.co.uk. So it's 40 for 40. All right, get on there, send me your comments. Send me your suggestions and look forward to hearing from you. Um, want to briefly again this week give you my recommendations. Um, and it's one this week, it's an album, and it's Man of the Woods by Justin Timberlake. Now I know there are a lot of haters out there in the world on this one, but, do you know, I absolutely love it. I know sometimes I go for the uh, underdog musically. I mean, he's not really an underdog because he played at the Super Bowl. And I know people hated on the Super Bowl performance as well. But that aside, with its microphone problems and sound problems, um, still enjoyed that. But anyway, it's I think it's a perfect pop R&B. And it has got a slight country twang to it, but it's not a country album. Um, you cannot fault the tracks... Um, Midnight Summer Jam, which is what it is. That track is brilliant. Probably one of Justin's best tracks ever. Um, there's another track, Montana. Um, there's a duet with Chris Stapleton, who I mentioned in the last episode, uh, called Say Something. And Chris Stapleton is a country star, um, but it's a brilliant duet. And oh, the other thing, yes, I am going to mention, I'm starting to fall in love again with season two of Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. Now, I wasn't sure about the first couple of episodes of this new season. And then I, after that, I was completely sucked in again. So uh, those are my brief recommendations this week. Anyway, please listen and enjoy to the marvellous Mr. Eric Marcus. So, Eric, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, massive fan, as I've said to you already. Um, can we just start at the very beginning? Yeah, it's a very good place to start. To tell me where you <laughs> yes. where you were born. That sounds like that sounds like a song from Sound of Music. I think eh, maybe, possibly. <laughs> yes. um, can you tell me where you were born and uh, kind of just a, a, a brief summary of your of your beginnings? Yes, I, I was born on East 66th Street in Manhattan and uh, then was living in exile in Queens for ah. 17 years, uh, about 16 miles east of Manhattan in a neighborhood. Mm -hmm. um, 
I, I like to think of it as the Iowa of New York City. Um, we came into Manhattan twice a year, what we called the city, uh, to see the show at Radio City Music Hall and to see the tree at uh, the Christmas tree at Rockefeller Center. But I didn't see Greenwich Village until I had graduated from high school in 1976. Okay. And that, and that is hard to imagine because the train that I lived near, um, I grew up in a place called Kew Gardens, uh, named after Kew Gardens in London. Yes. Or outside yes. London. Yeah. My train went directly from my station to Greenwich Village in about 45 minutes. And I didn't think to take that train until after I'd graduated from high school. Okay. Okay. So, so, so I led a very sheltered life in, a, in a, a Jewish neighborhood that was filled with refugees from World War II, mostly Austrian and German. Okay. Um, so, so for you growing up in that area and at that time, did you, how, was, was schooling uh, something that you, well, first of all, did you enjoy your schooling um, or, or was that was that an easy time for you or did you did you struggle through school? I always ask all my guests this question because it's kind of a good kickoff point. No, I wasn't. I, I was a I was one of those teachers pet students and I, I did very well in school um, and loved my my elementary school days and my middle school days. Um, and then high school was uh, was not great. It wasn't good academically. Um, and also adolescence is not the easiest time. Uh, I went to a, a sort of typical New York City uh, inner city high school, about 3,000 students, one-third black, one-third Hispanics, one-third whites and other minorities. Uh, okay. And many of the kids were, were poorly prepared. Um, and um, uh, it proved to be damaging in terms of my first year of college because it was, I was so unprepared for my first year. Um, okay. But I, I had a, I had a I, I'd say in terms of my experience with the New York City public schools was very positive up until... Up until high school. Okay, so school wasn't 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 an uh, so schooling itself wasn't an issue. So, so what sort of age did you first become? I mean, an experience or a moment that you remember becoming aware of that that you were gay. I I had a sense of being different from very early on. I remember being uh, at summer camp when I was probably eleven or twelve, and the boys all wanted to go on raids of the girls' bunks at night. And I couldn't yeah. imagine why anyone would want to get up in the middle of the night and go on raids of the girls' bunks. And it's not that I was attracted to boys or men. I yeah. just didn't understand. And I felt like I was living, I was seeing life through a thick glass wall. I just didn't okay. get it. Um, and as I grew older and kids started to date, it was very confusing to me. Um, but I do remember very specifically being probably about 15 years old sitting in my dentist's office um, in Kew Gardens, Queens on Metropolitan Avenue. And I was waiting for my turn with Dr. Teitelbaum, who was a German refugee who didn't uh -huh. use anesthetic um, and only learned later that, that you could actually have anesthetic. And I thought that he was a, we all joked that he was a Nazi plant because he tortured all of us without using anesthetic. Oh, um, but he wasn't, he wasn't, I'm <laughs> quick to add. He did torture us, though. So um, <laughs> I was reading, I picked up a copy of the Reader's Digest, and there was a condensed version of a book called Consenting Adult, which was uh, a novel written by Laura Z. Hobson, who'd written a book previously called Gentleman's Agreement about anti-Semitism in sure. the U.S. And this book, uh, uh, Consenting Adult, was about a mother and her gay son. And I didn't, I couldn't believe what I was reading. I don't think, I had never read anything about anyone gay up to that point. And I completely recognized myself in the character of the son, 
Who coincidentally okay. I met at my I just I met at my doctor's office just two weeks ago. Wow, that's incredible. Uh, we have the same we have the same doctor, and it was Laura Z. Hobson's son, Christopher Hobson, sitting wow. in the waiting room, and and my and my doctor knows my work, and he said, "Oh, you should meet Christopher." Um, oh so he's someone we'll be interviewing soon. Yeah, it's Small just world. astonishing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so from from there then, so sort of. From, I mean, this is jumping a little bit, but the first time that you do you remember the first time going into a, for want of better description, into a gay space, um, whether it be a group, uh, a, a bar. Uh, whatever it would have been do you do you have a distinct memory of that happening and, and how you felt yes august of 1976 um the bar was called charlie's east it was on 36th street and third avenue it was very popular with people from queens because it was uh near the the queens midtown tunnel so if people were if you were driving in it was uh, yeah uh, near near the, uh, near the tunnel um i went by subway with with uh, my first crush and I remember walking in and being scared to death. Um, it was dark, very smoky, and I couldn't stand the smoke. And yeah. I was 17, and everyone was so much older. They were somewhere between 25 and 30 years old. Um, so I felt a little intimidated. It was, uh, it was, it was scary. And people looked at each other, and there wasn't much conversation. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know what I expected, but it, it it was scary. Fortunately, I was with someone who was older than I was, who was 23 and was there to, I don't know if I thought of him as protecting me, mm -hmm. but he certainly was there to guide me. Yeah. Wow. Um, do you know what? There was actually a, an experience before that, which I, I forgot to mention. That was my first gay bar. But when mm. I was uh, 16, I was taken to Fire Island to Cherry Grove, um, mm. which was which was and is a gay community out on a spit of sand off of Long Island, which is about an hour, hour and a half from New York City. I was taken there by uh, my neighbor, Reverend Mullen, a widower who I had hoped would marry my mother, but he was much more interested in me than he was my mother. And he okay. took me to, uh, yeah, he wow. took me to visit with friends, with friends of his. Um, and that was scary because they were talking about things that I didn't understand. Um, sure. They brought up something called the Meat Rack, which was a place between the Pines and another village called, I'm sorry, between Cherry Grove and another village called the Pines. Yeah. Um, and, and they said, I should be careful going there. And I said, why? And they said, well, you could be raped. And it turns out that's where men would go to have anonymous sex. And I didn't know how a man could be raped. So I asked how, how a man could be raped. And I could tell you, as a 16 year old, very naive from where I grew up, I was scared to death. And I said to Reverend Mullen, we're leaving. Um, but we didn't leave. He persuaded me to stay. And, and uh, we stayed long enough to go to something called Tea Dance, which was an afternoon. Uh, I guess afternoon cocktail party at this outdoor bar. Yeah. Um, and there was a dance space as well. And I remember uh, seeing men dance together for the first time and it was shocking. Um, shocking and exciting and terrifying. And I asked the one girl um, in that entire space if she would yeah. dance with me. She had on cutoffs and a t-shirt and short cropped hair and I could tell you she wasn't interested in me. Um, <laughs> but she danced with she danced with me. She thought I was crazy. Um, the sympathy it was mind-blowing uh, yeah and if and if it was possible to turn a gay person straight that experience of being on the island that day would have turned me straight um, I was so scared so that oh, was yeah. my my first experience wow that's quite a that's quite a that's not you know you're not taking taking small steps there that's jumping in the in the deep end if I've ever heard a story of 
<laughs> of deep end mist. That yeah, and it wasn't out. it wasn't a good idea. I I thought. I mean, in retrospect, it was. Uh, I was really unprepared emotionally for that. And Reverend Mullen, I was irresponsible in um, bringing me out there without uh, telling me what to anticipate. Yeah, uh, he had ideas. He thought I was probably a gay kid. Uh, I barely knew that I was a gay kid. Yeah, too early. Too early. Yeah. Um, Jumping ahead again a little bit, um, talking about your studies, um, I've uh, done a little bit of research and just looking at that you um, you studied at Columbia University and you have a master's in journalism. Um, and was this always kind of the natural path for you? I mean, at what point did did journalism become? Did you fall upon it, or, or was it something from from even from childhood that you always sort of uh, wished to to pursue in some way? Uh, journalism was an accident. Um, I started out very interested in architecture. I was a Lego kid. I built houses out of Lego from uh, as far back as the as the uh, mid nineteen sixties, and so I always thought I would be an architect or an urban planner. And after college, I was an urban studies major in college. Uh, mm. and went on to work for an urban planner and then went on to work for uh, Philip Johnson, the architect. Uh, and it was at that point that I realized I had no talent as an architect uh, and uh, decided that I would write about architecture. But writing about architecture felt boring after a few articles. But I did mm -hmm. love seeing my name uh, at the top of the... I, I loved seeing the byline, my name in a byline. Okay. Uh, and so I decided that I would uh, go back to school and I had scholarship money for a one-year graduate program. Um, and so I, uh, Columbia University had a one-year journalism program, and I liked getting my articles published, and I'd been doing some freelance writing at that point. Um, and so I went back to school and got my, my master's in journalism. I thought that I would work for a politician as a press secretary. Mm. Um, I'd been very interested in electoral politics when I was young, but I knew that as a gay person, an out gay person, I could never run for office. And at that time, in the, the early 1980s, there was no way to run as an openly gay person, sure, even sure. for city government here in New York. So um, uh, I had a very circuitous path to my, to my career. Journalism was not the first thing, but then I settled on it and uh, uh, wrote my first book, which was also an accident, and then went to work in television news, and then was offered the opportunity to write a book called Making, a, Making History, an oral history of the what was then called the Gay Civil Rights Movement. And yeah. that's that's that changed my life. Um, I wound up writing books for most of my career after that. I was going to say you're you're a you're a prolific author. Obviously, I discovered you through making Gay History the podcast, and delved deeper, devoured all three seasons of the podcast. Um, and, and then, I mean, yes, if if you don't mind, in a little bit, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about some of some of the some of the books and go through some of the titles sure. with you. Um, so jumping to making gay history you uh, you're working for cbs news for a while um and how was how was that i mean were they politically were they aligned with your thinking and 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 with your were they aware of your sexuality yeah i was the only openly gay person on the editorial side at cbs morning news um, okay and that was that that was fine. I, I, I mean, I, I don't think I expected anything else. Um, I was assigned because I knew something about gay people. I was assigned all of the uh, stories 
regarding AIDS um, and gay people. Um, it was a natural thing. And I remember one of the producers uh, apologizing to me for, for giving me all of those stories, but I felt like I was the best person to be the, the associate producer on those. Actually, segment producer is what my title was. Yeah. Um, but there were, there were times when it was awkward. I remember uh, my boss pitching a story on pederast priests, like a, yet another story on pederast priests. And yeah. I said, you cannot do another story on pederast priests unless you do something nice about gay people. Just not, we can't do that. Yeah. And, um, and I had a colleague after the meeting say, who I knew was gay but was closeted, say, I'm really glad you spoke up. And I said, well, I wish you had spoken up. Um, I had hoped while I was at CBS to move from the production side to being on the other side of the camera. Um, there was nobody who was out in those days who was on national news in any capacity. Mm. So I made an appointment to speak with one of the senior executives um, and asked her if they would ever put anyone on camera who was, who was out. And at that point, my first book had been published, The Male Couple's Guide. It was no secret that I was gay. Um, mm. In fact, my publisher had sent a copy of the book to every single person at CBS News. So I arrived oh. at work one morning and there were, there were copies all over the office, um, which was okay, I guess. I was a little surprised. I wish they'd given me a heads up. Um, but I, uh, uh, so I asked the senior executive and it was one of those, those conversations where the person you're talking with does not want to give you a straight answer. Uh, but finally uh, I said, I just, need, I just need to know, would you ever put an openly gay person on camera? And she said, no. Um, yeah. So when I got a call from a, a, an editor at Harper and Row, now Harper Collins, uh, mm. asking me if I'd be interested in writing an oral history of the gay civil rights movement, um, while while I was certainly no expert, um, I was intrigued by the idea, and I could see that my career at CBS was going to hit a wall, or I was just going to have to keep doing what I was doing. So I leapt at the opportunity and left, and then spent the next two and a half years working on making history, later called in the second edition, making gay history. Yeah and spent that time interviewing scores of people across the U.S. who've been involved in the, in the movement from, uh, the stories go back as far as 1920, up until uh, 1990 when I finished doing the interviews. 1990, yeah. Um, did I hear somewhere or read that the, that the actually the equipment that you used initially to make some of the recordings, um, that came through, that was supplied by, knowingly or not, CBS? Yes, well, my first boss at CBS, a man named Jay Kernis, uh, who, interestingly, again, works at CBS, uh, although he'd left for many years. Um, Jay had uh, worked for public radio here in the U.S., and so I asked him what his colleagues at uh, National Public Radio used for their interviews. And he uh, referred me to one of his colleagues, and I bought exactly what they had. You know, I can't tell you that I thought then that 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 these recordings would ever be used for a podcast. There were, of course, no podcasts. Yeah, but I must yeah, have yeah. thought that they were, you know, I must have thought they were important enough to use broadcast quality equipment. Mm. So I bought a really good Sony recorder. It was a cassette recorder and bought mm. uh, lapel mics, two great lapel mics. And that's what I used. And I bought the best quality audio cassette tape that you could use for that purpose. Um, but I, you can hear from the interviews in the podcast that often I'm not the best mic'd person, although the person I'm interviewing is always well mic'd. I didn't think I'd ever be in the interviews themselves. I was recording these interviews for a book. Okay. I mean, I have to say that you're uh, one of the things also for my listeners and for anyone who's going to jump in and listen to you is just the way you set up and describe the um the atmosphere and the place and obviously there's there's a date and a time given 
by you as you start the recording but pre pre prior to that um you 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 give us you give the listeners the uh, the and say preamble but the 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 way in and uh i think it's really effective and that you have those memories have clearly stuck with you because you you talk about yeah, you, you, sort of you sights give me and too smells. <laughs> yeah you give me too much credit matt um i i took uh field notes so i wrote a lot of detailed notes after each interview so okay. that's why um that's why i can provide that kind of information in the setup to the piece which i I'm so glad I did because it provides the listener a way into these interviews that I wouldn't have had otherwise. I have a terrible memory, which is why I took the field notes. Okay. Um, so I looked around, and this is from my work as a journalist previously. I'd look around at the space. I took down notes about the space, what a person was wearing, what smells uh, there might have been. Um, mm. And then when I, when I talk to students now, journalism students who are doing interviews, I stress the importance of taking field notes because... A week later or 10 years later or 30 years later, if your work is put in an archive, that those field notes have enormous value to a person who wasn't actually there for the interview, but might mm. be accessing your material. It's, 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 it's clear that you have. I mean, to say it's, 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 and now you say that, that makes, that makes lots of sense. But I think it's a lovely way to, um, to, 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 to start each episode as well. And um, it certainly, it sets a, a quite a specific atmosphere. Um, yeah, jumping I, I think those. of it as time. Tra I, I think of it as time travel. That yeah. that I use those introductions to bring people back in time, so mm. that they're sitting with me on a porch with Edith Ide, or at Wendell Sayers dining room table, um, or in uh, Evander Smith's kitchen in San Francisco. Uh, yeah. Because these interviews took place so long ago, um, uh, it it helps to use the setting to bring people back in time to be with me. Uh, in 1988 or 1989, or in the case of Ellen DeGeneres, 2001, in her yeah. living room in Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, so yes, actually, uh, jumping to to the Ellen DeGeneres interview, that was so that was 2001. That was the the last of those interviews. Yes, I did for the second edition of the of the book. Um, I did an additional. Uh, uh, I think it was additional 16 interviews uh, to cover the period from 1990 to 2000. I wound up covering it to 2001, and mm -hmm. Ellen was one of the last interviews I did, and that was at a low point in her career, well before mm. anyone might have imagined that she'd wind up being perhaps the most popular daytime talk show host of all time um, and an American sweetheart. It was a very a dark period for her. Sure, sure, and that was because that she had uh, her sitcom had been cancelled and um it did in that interview it did come across that she she was in a in a quite in quite a dark place and she seemed to warm to you very quickly we had so much fun she's a lovely human being she really is uh who you see on on television totally unassuming mm. uh i arrived at her at her door and she'd forgotten that i was coming she thought i was a tabloid journalist at first uh, <laughs> and she had just gotten up from a nap and was in her jammies um uh, it couldn't. It couldn't have been a more easygoing, comfortable, fun interview. Sure. Um, there was. I mean, this is. I jump in and talk to you a lot about the uh, some of the interviews that I'm. The one that I've. I mean, astoundingly, and the hundred interviews. Am I right in thinking there's a hundred interviews? Yes, a hundred interviews, about three hundred hours worth of tape. Yeah, I mean that's incredible. Um, it, just the the. the 
activists, the drag queens, the prominent figures in the Stonewall riots, the, um, obviously Sylvia Rivera, um, for instance, that particular interview, how, the, you, you again, talking about the atmosphere, and I believe she's in the second part, she's cooking um, whilst she, yes, drinking some vodka. She was cooking... Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was, uh, during the interview, um, she was making a pot of chili. So you can hear her making um, the chili. And so there's mm. there's a- atmospheric sound that I, j- I didn't even think that I was recording atmospheric sound, but it comes in very <laughs> handy. And our executive producer, Sarah Burningham, has often thanked me for having recorded those things because it brings the listener into the space um, in a way that a, a studio interview would not. So Sylvia was making chili when I was there, and she sent her boyfriend mm. out to get um, tomato sauce. And in the second episode uh, with Sylvia, you can hear her saying, "Frank, Frank, go get <laughs> go get some tomato sauce." Yeah. <laughs> uh, and also, there was, as I say in the in uh, in one of the pieces, which we did two episodes with Sylvia. Yeah. Um, there was a bottle of vodka on the kitchen table that was well on its way to being being emptied. So over the course of the interview, she got increasingly um, inebriated. Uh, yeah. She had, uh, at, at different points in her life, she struggled with with um, alcohol problems and, and drug sure. abuse as well, and also men- mental illness. And when you hear Sylvia's story um, and f- find out that she was on the street selling herself at age 11, uh, you mm-hmm. can easily understand why, why she struggled with life mm. um, and mm. suffered from mental illness and, and substance abuse. Uh, just an incredibly tragic experience um sure of growing up as an unwanted person sure and you 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 chatted to um marcia johnson as well didn't you yes um marcia was somewhat accidental because i had gone to interview randy wicker who was a key figure in the the movement here in the u.s he led the first public protest in 1964 at uh, what's called what was called the Whitehall Induction Center, it was a place where where people went to sign up in the military, and it, he led a public protest over the fact that gay people were excluded from the military. So I went to interview Randy, and um, Randy said, "I want to go back to my apartment in Hoboken, in New Jersey. Um, let's do the interview there." And Marsha P. Johnson, who was not nearly as famous then as she has become, yeah, uh, was there. So I did a joint interview with the two of them, and I. I they were such a contrast, the two of them. It was, I don't know what, if anything, they had taken that day. And I have, so I have no way of knowing, but it was as if Randy was on speed and uh-huh. um, Marsha was on downers, on tranquilizers. You sure? Um, Marsha was draped in a chair like a cat and Randy was buzzing like there's an electric current going through him. So it was yeah. one of the most interesting and frustrating interviews that I did of all the interviews I did. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, extremely interesting interview i was listening to it again the other day just um knowing i was going to be talking to you and as you say you can hear him well buzzing um and the speed he's talking at you (laughs) um yes yes and what's so interesting about about that interview is that you hear someone randy wicker talk about how he thought stonewall was a disaster Mm, um mm. and you and uh, and how he had disdain for the drag queens and the street people. And here yeah. Marsha had come, Marsha, who is a, a self-described drag queen and street person, um, was taken in by Randy and lived with Randy for eight years. And and, wow. um, and they became the closest of, of friends. Randy was really uh, Marsha's guardian. Uh, so it's, 
it's what I love about that interview is uh, how it shows the complexity of the story. It's yeah. not a simple story, not no part of it. And certainly the Stonewall Uprising and what came before and after is not a simple story. And, and everyone had different perspectives on what happened. And for yeah. example, a lot of people have come to believe that Marsha threw the first cocktail glass or the first brick at the Stonewall Uprising. Mm-hmm. And there she is in the interview with Randy saying, I didn't get there until two in the morning. Yes. So, yeah. So one of the joys is getting is letting people who I interviewed speak for themselves and tell their own stories without uh, without anyone interpreting or intervening. Sure, sure. Um, th- it's interesting that you, that you you one of the subjects you spoke to Chuck Rowland. Um, I personally, as an actor, had uh, in London performed in a play called The Temperamentals. I'm not sure if you're aware of that play. I saw the temperamentals. I hated the temperamentals, um, and I'll tell you why. What? Who did you play in, in in the temperamentals? I was playing Bob Hull. Ah, what what made me crazy about the temperamentals was that I met um, Harry Hay and I met Chuck Rowland. Yeah, and Chuck would have hated how he was portrayed. Um, so that's right. I'm probably one of the only, the only people who would who had any problem with that. Because people didn't, you know, Chuck has been dead for years. Um, yeah. So, um, so I actually left it intermission. Don't tell anybody. Okay. Now that's interesting that you. So okay. So you and so you'd met and you met Harry Hay as well. Did you ever uh, interview him? Have you got any recordings of that or? Yes, I I interviewed Harry Hay. I I te- I tended not to include people in the book whose stories were well known at the time. Sure. And Harry Hay was a well-known figure. And also, he was the kind of interview where you go in, you sit down. Um, well, actually, don't go in and sit down. I walked in. He kissed me on the lips before I had the chance to, to avoid it. Um, <sighs> and I, I wanted to say, I don't know you that well. Um, but yeah. I think he kissed all men on, you know, young men on the lips uh, the moment he saw them. Um, and I don't know that. I'm just, just an aside. I, um, he kissed me on the lips. I, I can't speak for anybody else. Um <laughs> I turned on the tape recorder and three hours later, after switching tapes a number of times, the interview was over. He was keen on telling me his story. He was not interested in, in being asked any questions. And he had told his story so many times by that point, it didn't really feel authentic to me. So right. we have him on tape. Uh, we will certainly use him in f- future seasons, um, but I didn't use him in the book. Um, and, um, and actually, I can't even recall what's on the tape because I didn't transcribe his interview. Okay. That makes sense. I mean, actually, before we talk about, because there are so many, and obviously your your time's limited, but um, uh, seasons-wise, how how far are you looking ahead in, in, in giving us more? I mean, we're up to season three. Um, how many more seasons have you got planned ahead? We're looking at seasons four and five. We're in the planning stages right now. Uh, Stonewall 50, the 50th anniversary of Stonewall is coming up in 2019. So we're just thinking through... Oh. our editorial direction um, between now and then, how we can make the best use of our archive to tell the story um, of the movement. So sure. stay tuned. And for your listeners who want to keep track of what we're doing, I recommend going to our website at makinggayhistory.com and signing up for our newsletter and we'll keep people posted. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because you, um, you do have activities, you have events at the Stonewall Inn, don't you? We did one. We did a live event. Uh, it was Making Gay History Live upstairs at the Stonewall Inn. Um, 
we did a what we call our queer quiz show, and we had um, uh, an in, we did I did an interview with Martin Boyce, who was one of the people who was at the Stonewall uprising. Mm-hmm. It was an incredibly fun evening. So yes, we do have we do presentations per- periodically and live and baking events as well. Baking gay history, which I <laughs> yeah yes, my my favorite part. I thought that baking gay history when Sarah Birmingham suggested. Baking gay history. I thought, oh my god, this is such a terrible idea, and it turned out to be the best part of the whole program. We had several organizations that brought um, cakes, and each cake had to have a theme and a story, and each baker had to present. So the most remarkable uh, 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 entry, to my mind, although they didn't yeah. win, because it wasn't the tastiest, was a tableau from one of the reminder day marches in philadelphia in front of independence hall in uh, the Mm mid-1960s these were marches held every year on july 4th um, for five years uh, gay uh, gay rights protesters and Mm -hmm. this entry from the uh, nyc lgbt historic sites project they did it in cupcakes Um, wow each cupcake the icing had it was a fondant icing and it had uh, uh, the clothing from the different people who were in the protest so Frank Kameny's cupcake had his suit his plain suit Barbara Giddings right. cupcake had her famous Marameco dress um, uh-huh. and each cupcake had its own little uh, flag um, Wow! it was an extraordinary it was actually a, a, a protest poster it was extraordinary um, one of the cakes had a, an image of um, Harvey Milk. Uh, uh-huh. It was so inventive, so clever, and so tasty. Uh, it's something <laughs> we'll have to do again. Um, I just love, and I also love baking gay history um, as as an idea, um, as u- using cake. And of course, yeah. this is the idea came from the great uh, British Bake Off. I did wonder. <laughs> Yes. Um, yes. Well, that was Sarah Burningham's idea, and uh, and it was it's a very good one. Uh, I, I, it was a terrific idea, and generally now I don't say that it, that I was very much against it, but um, but I was, and I was wrong. I'm often wrong. Sarah is almost right ninety nine point nine percent of the time. So how did you how did you and Sarah come to be working together? Where where did you where did you meet in the world? Um, I first met Sarah Birmingham uh, from my kitchen window. Uh, she and her husband were living in the apart- in the brownstone next door on the ground floor on the garden level, and Sarah was in her backyard. Um, so that's how I got to know Sarah. And then she oh, spent okay. a, a few years in, in Arkansas and then came back to the street and lives uh, across the street, and I can see into her, her children's bedroom from my living room. <laughs> so it's a classic New York story. And when I had this project sort of fall in my lap where I, I was going to be providing uh, excerpts from my archive for an organization called History Unerased. They're mm-hmm. at unerased.org. They're creating LGBT inclusive curricula for kindergarten through 12th grade. Um, okay. I was going to provide little excerpts of audio and from my archive, and I knew that Sarah had worked for the BBC and still does and had worked for public radio in Arkansas. And I said, Sarah, can you cut tape? Yeah. And that's how it started. Um, wow. And we, we have been working together ever since. You seem to have quite a, you, you seem to have a really strong team of people working with you and people who really care about the project. I mean, obviously I'm a, a, a pretty much a, a one-man band, but to have 
people who are so dedicated to getting the stories out there, yourself and Sarah, and then there seems to be the, there's a team of like three or four other people at least uh, working. Even more, know. yeah. No, we have yeah. we have a we have a really passionate team, and it's definitely not a one one band uh, show or one man show. Um, Sarah's the executive producer, and uh, we have a social media strategist, a couple of yeah. researchers, an audio engineer, uh, a composer. I mean, it's just it's. And, and we also have a co-producer at Pineapple Street Media, Jenna Weiss-Berman, who's been so generous with her time and her studio. Mm. People have really been passionate about helping with this project. It's, uh, um, uh, it's heartening to find that so many people um, are engaged and excited and um, determined to help us get this material out to the larger public. Um, we've yeah. seen this on social media as well. Uh, people have spread the word quite literally all over the world. We're downloaded in... 206 countries and territories around the world wow i'm not surprised that, but yeah i mean incredible that it's uh, that it sounds like it's ever growing yes just the other day somebody in iceland discovered us and then started promoting us in one by one you, we can see the downloads from iceland um, so mm. now we have a, a fan group in in iceland so if anyone in iceland is listening we'd love to come do a live presentation in reykjavik <laughs> oh yes in the summer in the summer, <laughs> oh, I was last. I was last in Iceland in January of 1979. So, uh, so I don't need to be there again in the dead oh, of okay. winter. <laughs> do you ha- do you ever spend any time in the UK in London at all? I've been to London many, many times. Um, haven't been in a couple of years, uh, but absolutely love London. Um, and. Um, Oh, I'm trying to is, is Gaze the Word the name of your bookstore in London? Yes, the, the yes, bookstore? yes. I've been. I've also been in, in, in the store a number of times. Um, so you're, you're a, a fay with. It's my f- <laughs> yes, you're you're quite a fay with with uh, gay London. Yes, um, yes, very <laughs> familiar with gay London. <laughs> um, just to jump jump around again a little bit. Um, talk about uh, some of uh, your titles. Um, you worked on, you worked with, co-authored with Robbie Rogers, the footballer, um, who was the Leeds United footballer, um, who famously came out and he was 20, 25? He was, you know, you may remember better than I, I haven't read the book in a few years. Uh, Robbie just um, posted on, on Instagram about the fifth anniversary of when we started work on that book, which I can hardly believe it's been so long. Right. Um, I had the I had the opportunity because of that book to go to Leeds uh, where he played because I felt oh, okay. that I needed to experience uh, a football game in Leeds at the stadium where he played and where he was also oh. knocked unconscious uh, during his first game. And I had to have a translator at the game to translate <laughs> the chants because uh-huh. the accent was such that I couldn't understand it. So it was oh, funny. I had never and I'd never been to a uh, to a football game before. Um, sure. European football. Um, I've never been to yeah. a soccer game in the US. Mm. So it was a completely new experience. And being in that stadium uh, in Leeds was extraordinary. Um, and then very coincidentally, I was at a tea shop in um, in Leeds in mm. one of the lovely arcades just outside of downtown. And I was chatting, it turned out, chatting with the husband of the owner. And he, I said, we were struggling with the title. And he said, hmm, how about coming out to play? And I thought, oh my God, that's it. That's the title. 
Um, <laughs> and he was a, a finance guy who'd just come in at lunch to help his wife with this new tea shop that they'd opened, uh, that she'd opened. He'd come to help wash dishes. Brilliant. Uh, and, and sat down with me because I was there by myself having a snack and asked me what I was there for. And I told him what I was doing and he came up with the title. <laughs> so yes, working with, working with Robbie was so interesting. Um, I've done several sports autobiographies and yeah. I am so not a, yeah, I'm not, so not a sports guy. Um, okay. Cause that was one I, of my questions that you seem to have worked with a lot of, yes, with a lot of, I mean, obviously people are coming out, but still it's sports and yeah. Yep. So I've learned every detail there is to know about figure skating and about <laughs> um, uh, uh, professional weightlifting, um, actually bodybuilding and um, also um, diving with Greg Luganis, the Olympic diving champion. Yes. Um, so the biggest, yeah. And the biggest challenges with all of those books, it was explaining to a lay reader, to a person who's not necessarily familiar with the sport, how those men did their sport. So how do you take apart uh, triple lutz, whatever, um, yeah. or, uh, you know, I don't remember any of the terms anymore. The time has passed, but I had to take apart all of those routines to help my readers or help the readers understand what the person I was writing about was actually sure. doing, what they accomplished. Sure. I mean, of, of all of those, I mean, which was the one that you clear because Greg Luganis, that was in the mid nineties, I presume um yes that book was published in 95. 95. Um, it was a you know it was a huge national bestseller it was number one new york times bestseller for yes five weeks um not that i remember those things uh <laughs> and it was absolutely thrilling it was huge national news I and mean, it's hard to imagine now what the world was like in 1995 and how secretive people were about an hiv diagnosis um mm. and the fact that he competed when he had HIV in 1988. That was a revelation. I remember getting a call on a Thursday evening um, from a friend saying, turn on the television. Um, there's a, the lead story is on, on Greg and the book and hitting his head on the diving board and bleeding in the pool in Seoul, Korea. Um, right. It was, it, was an, it was a total media storm. Um, by that next Monday, he was on the Oprah Winfrey show. It was, and then I traveled with him on his book tour for a week. I've mm -hmm. never experienced anything like it uh, since, and certainly nothing like it before. Being chased sure. down a main street in, in Miami Beach, Florida, by by rabid fans. Um, there was one time we were chased by a car. We mm. had been he had been on Good Morning America, which is ABC's morning television show here in New York. Yeah. And we got in a limousine and we were followed by this van that had black windows. Couldn't see who was inside, and it was a chase from Midtown Manhattan to the airport and wow. our driver was trying to lose them it was terrifying and these guys pulled up in those days you didn't know we thought maybe someone's trying to kill him yeah um, yeah and so this this van pulled up behind us and these guys jumped out with photographs that they wanted autographed and i gave them such a scolding at the airport and they scared us half to death and they could have gotten us killed um, mm. and that sort of thing happened all along the way so i insisted that the publisher hire security people in every city we were going to because we just hadn't anticipated um, no. the, the crush of, of fans. Um, and it was everyone who wanted to meet Greg, everyone from small children to, I remember the, a group of nuns in line um, in Atlanta. Uh, he touched people because of his life and what he'd struggled with. He touched people from across the spectrum of humanity. And a thousand people would show up to have their book signed at every location. Wow. It was extraordinary. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Extraordinary to have that. And, and obviously you didn't, as you say, you didn't even realise, you, you went into it not knowing it was going to have that effect. No, we knew we had planned to keep secret. He wasn't out about being gay or having HIV. Mm. Um, so we had kept that secret. And what happened was it leaked out the week before, which was how it wound up on the evening news. Um, he was supposed to go on a, a television, show, the, television show the next day, uh, which was going to be the official news that he uh, was gay and had HIV and had had HIV when he was competing in the 1988 Olympics, when mm. he hit his head on the dining board. Uh, oh, yes. So no, we, we, we didn't know. Um, we had a sense that it would be news, but but no, we had no idea that, that, that we would sell hundreds of thousands of copies of the book and that it would be national news. Right, incredible, incredible. Yeah, um, it was. Uh, jumping to another one, of the, another one of your titles, um, Is It a Choice, which is, uh, just looking here, has had three editions by the looks of it. Yes. Yeah, that's a book that was a basic Q&A book about gay issues. I found after my first book, The Male Couple's Guide, no one wanted to talk about relationships. They all had basic questions. When did you know? How did your parents react? Yeah. When did you get to be gay? Um, and I had a very hard time selling that book because all of the gay editors who my agent sent it to said, well, everybody already knows these things. And this was in the early 90s. Yeah. Um, and I didn't think everybody knew everything. And finally, we sold it to a straight woman editor. Um, at a division of HarperCollins, um, and she suggested doing it as a Q&A book, and it has sold lots of copies over the years and helped lots of young people in particular who are struggling simply to understand themselves. And it's also a book I recommend for parents. Um, it's just a yeah. It's yeah. I I I, I looking at um, I found the Fox News interview with you and um, Bill O'Reilly, and that was quite a tough interview. You were talking about that specific book weren't you yes um yes uh, i was that was that was an experience um that i actually would have loved to have repeated uh, with bill o'reilly he um he was trying to get me riled up he was trying to piss me off and get me angry yeah but i knew that was his routine and i was determined not to get angry i also had a wonderful uh, mentor who was a p-flag mom um, who lived through world war ii and occupied uh uh, Amsterdam and she said to me always say it with a smile don't let them see you upset yeah and that that's and I was determined with Bill O'Reilly to not um, uh, to not get upset so um, uh, so I I just deflected his questions my favorite response to him when he I, I said you know you could sleep with a man and I could sleep with a woman and you wouldn't be happy and I wouldn't be happy um, and that usually threw off the straight guys who were being antagonistic um, yeah. because the thought of, of sleeping with, a, with another guy would usually um, unnerve them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, your your because um, he said something along. Um, uh, uh, he mentioned uh, um, the fact that, that there was a um, certain part of the uh, gay population that was too... Uh, oh, actually, too in, yes, your in your face. face. Yes. In your yes. face. Yes, he said. Yeah, he's saying you're. It's like people who who say, you know, you're okay. You know, you dress okay. You're appropriately masculine. Mm -hmm. um, but those other people, you know, the gender non-conforming folks, the drag queens, mm -hmm. they're bad and they harm your cause. Um, and I wasn't going to let him get away with that. And I said that, that everyone has a place in the movement, and people like that 
are the ones who are often at the front lines and take the most abuse and it and they pave the way for people like me it makes it easy it's easy for me i have an easy task by comparison um the people who are gender non-conforming take so much of the abuse because of prejudice in our society and i'm someone who could pass so i'm i'm indebted to people like that and it's Absolutely. my responsibility Absolutely. to push ahead and yeah and and um and to build on what people like that that have done have accomplished for us those are our heroes but he Completely. wanted to put them down and say you know you're okay you're my friend um oh that's so pissed me off if yeah. ever there was a moment during that interview where i wanted to reach across and strangle him that was it <laughs> i have to say if anybody wants a lesson in staying calm and deflection then um definitely to go to youtube and and have a look at that interview <laughs> Yeah, you just have to Google Eric Marcus and Bill O'Reilly, and that's the one that comes up. And uh, <laughs> um, I'm astonished by the numbers of people who have looked at that at that um, that interview. Um, I'm a lot older now, so if you meet me after seeing it, you'll see that it's it's a it's a long time ago. It's more than 20 years ago. <laughs> um, just to because uh, I'm I know you're going to need to wind up soon, but um, just to uh, because a lot of my listeners are. Uh, theatrically inclined shall we say and i don't mean that uh -huh. as a <laughs> that's just the re that's the reality um is that you talk to larry kramer as well yes and larry kramer is someone i went in uh expecting to be quite volatile um, yeah because his reputation for having a terrible temper and he turned out to be incredibly sweet we had a wonderful time talking um, yeah and he has very much has two sides to him um the very theatrical um, very angry and also of course he's a theater person he's a playwright and wrote yeah. a normal heart um, and an author um, he was he was so different from what I expected and that happened to me over and over again in interviews I would go in expecting one thing or I'd meet someone and see them and, and make judgments based on how they looked and then they would turn out to be entirely different from what I expected so if there was a mm -hmm. lesson I took away from all these interviews I did it's not it's such an old lesson don't judge a book by its cover yeah. Or even if you have expectations, give people a ch the chance to uh, introduce themselves to you for the first time. Uh, you never know what or how a person will be when you interact with them one on one. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Eric, just to give you a chance to give my listeners all the details of your uh, where they can find you on social media and your website. Yes, they can find us on um, on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, and Facebook. Uh, we're, we're in all of those places. And if you want to find the podcast, you can either go to the website where it's very easy to listen to episodes. That's at makinggayhistory.com. That's one word. Or you can uh, subscribe to us on any number of the, uh, any one of a number of, of platforms from NPR One to uh, Apple Podcasts to uh, Stitcher, Google Play, all of them. Uh, but it's easiest to just find us at makinggayhistory.com and you can subscribe from there. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, and then one final question. Um, I listened to a podcast. You were talking to um, another gentleman called Matt in the Series of Paris interview. Um, and you were talking about music and favorite shows. Um, you mentioned uh, Let My People Come. Oh God! I can't believe you're bringing that up. Yes, yes that was one of the first Broadway shows. Yes, thank you, Matt. Yes, that was on <laughs> Sewers of Paris. It's a love. I love that podcast. Um, it's a podcast that uh, where gay men are interviewed about the um, 
the influencers from theater and music yes. um, and movies that that uh, that gay men have experienced. And Let My People Come was one of the first Broadway shows I saw. It actually never opened on Broadway. It was in previews. Um, it had been off-Broadway before that. And I can tell you, it is not a, a, a show about Israel or the Exodus or anything related <laughs> to the Middle East. It is a show about about sex. And um, if ever I wondered whether or not I was gay, I can tell you, after watching naked men gyrating on stage, um, uh, uh, singing not such great Broadway songs, my God, that was the moment. Um, that was another uh, Reverend Mullen moment. He took me and one of my classmates from high school to see that show, not telling us in advance ah, that, the what, what the topic yes. of the show is. And I don't think I, I don't think I ever told my mother uh, what nice. show we saw that day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you can best. find you can find some of the music you can find some of the music online, and it is it is pretty bad, um, but that's not what they were selling uh, when they were selling tickets to let my people come. Maybe it's time for a resurgence, and we can uh, we can do that in London, and you can come over and um, tell your story uh, post show. <laughs> um, what listen. a great idea! <laughs> so, Eric, your biggest influence outside of your family. Um, as a, coming out when you were a twenty-something man, um, sort of as a, as a as a gay, one of your gay influences, or not even necessarily gay, but somebody who really, somebody who you looked to for, um, if you did look to anyone for guidance and and uh, ways to get through. Um. That's a very good question. There were different people along the way, but in terms of my, my professional life, I'd have to go back to Amy Ashworth, the person who told me, always say it with a smile. Mm -hmm. Amy was just a, a, a fierce human being. She was a P-flag mom. Um, and she was someone who had enormous influence on my life. Also, it turns out her son was my uh, agent for, uh, for my book, Making History. Um, he died of AIDS years later. Okay. So, uh, and I interviewed Amy and Dick for my first book, The Male Couples Guy. They were the first people I interviewed. Um, there are so many people, though, who I interviewed for Making History and then the subsequent edition, Making Gay History, who have been people who have inspired me in my life and who I turned to for, for inspiration in moments when I might be a little fearful. One in particular is Morty Manford, uh, who was an activist now long forgotten, who yes. uh, we did an episode about in our last season. And at age 21, he found himself um, at a, a major event in New York City with a thousand people in the audience um, and the mayor of the city of New York, Mayor Lindsay, up at the podium talking about the Vietnam War. And they, there was a group uh, led by the Gay Activist Alliance outside this auditorium in Greenwich Village in 1971 protesting the fact that the police were still raiding gay bars and beating up gay people. And yeah. they couldn't get inside this, this, uh, this theater space, but somehow Morty got in. And he said, there I am standing at the back of the theater at the top of the aisle. The mayor is up on the stage talking. And what was I going to do? And you can hear him in the interview incredulous over what his 21-year-old self did that day. It, was, it happened to be his birthday. It was Constitution Day, I think September 21st, 1971. He had just turned, to 20, turned 21. Yeah. And he said, I did what anybody else would do. I marched down that aisle, went up on stage and took the microphone away from the mayor. And so whenever I'm, and he laughs when he's telling this because he can't believe he ever did this. Mm. So whenever I feel fearful, I think of Morty Manford and that moment and remind myself that if he could do that at age 21, I can certainly do, I can certainly deal with any situation where I'm fearful, um, which is far less threatening than anything he ever experienced. Yes. So I carry all of these wonderful people in my head who I interviewed from Edith Ide to uh, Dr. Evelyn Hooker and Morty Manford and Larry Kramer, 
all of these people live inside my head and I have the privilege of hearing their voices um, there to support me through the rest of my life. And long may they stick with us and you and and the rest of us listening to your podcast from here on in. So um, thank you so much. And uh, just a big shout out to, to Morty's mother as well. Yes, Jean Manford, who was the co-founder of, of PFLAG. She was yes. extraordinary too. And uh, we did a joint interview with Jean and Morty in our first season. You can listen to it there. I loved that So one. thanks so much, Matt. It's really a, really a pleasure being on your show. Thank you so much. Thank you.